Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to an all-new, long-awaited, much-needed, Aussie-less edition of Thrash and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast where the rats went away so the cats will play. And speaking of rats, Aaron's not here this week, but I'm Spencer, and this week the EGOT has landed, and the training wheels are off, because I'm joined, as usual, by my Jersey-born co-host, who went for a swim on the shore and washed up in Australia. It's Matt the Quizmaster. Hey there. Yes, of course, Aaron yes, is going to bring up that I was born in New Jersey. <laughs> hey, my mom's from New Jersey, so we can't insult it too much. I was only, the, I, I, I grew up in Massachusetts. I, I was born in New Jersey. I think I moved when I was three months old. Actually, my mother was pregnant when with me when she found the house. House, and um, my dad gave her pretty much one day to find a house. <laughs> and then we moved to Massachusetts. I was born in Massachusetts, funnily enough. I Were you? Was like, oh, I was I was born in Boston and we moved uh, to Chicago when I was two. Well, there so, you go. So just for all you listeners, Aaron is here. He's just gagged and bound so we can get a word in for a change. And because we've never hosted without him before, the show will be much better now. So guess what, Matt? What? We have a returning legendary diva stuck in the middle of zombie high today. And after leaving his footprint <laughs> 65 million episodes ago, he's in for another future shock. Because this straight white male won a Writer's Guild Award for putting words in a lesbian's mouth with Ellen. But that's the trouble with normal when you're used to putting thoughts in Herman's head that send Grace under fire when she's better off Ted. Not like Jake in Progress with Dr. Ken Bob Patterson, who Roseanne let him know that the O'Neills are real, Mary is imaginary, Dog is Shaggy, and Erector, who controls the universe. So whilst I'm breaking in as host, please help me Charlie Foxtrot up Thunder Alley, a huge American howdy, but don't ask, just break the rules of engagement for this genius comedy writer who wrote lawyers and other briefs before the Big Bang Theory left him speechless, but luckily still standing, like the last man standing. So before we go extinct by recycling too many jokes on this sports night, please help me welcome back to our torture chamber, Fluffy Shop, this velociraptor writer, producer, actor, and narrator who schooled us aliens in America in how to chow down on prehistory with the much-beloved dinosaurs. So before we get eaten, let's make sure the kids are all right and say a few Irish Catholic prayers for this hilarious genius. It's Sir Tim Doyle. Yay, welcome back. Hi, quite a quite a nice introduction. He managed to work in uh, most of my uh, my uh, credits there, so you don't even have to go to IMDb now. If you if you uh, listen closely, you'll know a lot of the things that I've been involved in. Did we leave anything out? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to peruse, but uh, I mean, I've Yes, I've got a long and storied career working in the uh, in the half hour television comedy business. Um, I've I've worked with a lot of big stars on on a lot of uh, well regarded sitcoms, and some more obscure and and less well regarded, and some that are hidden gems that if you found out about them, you and you and you find and you manage to track them down on one of your streaming services, you might really enjoy yourself. But um, you know, they didn't quite enter popular culture in a big way. Uh, I also I also heard the names of several of my failed pilots in there, uh, <laughs> which I don't I don't think anyone kept a copy of. Um, I mean, I may have I may have a uh, a uh, an old uh, DVD or a VHS copy in my cupboard over there, uh, but uh, most of them, well, some of them are are maybe best let. Uh, best left uh, unreexamined. Though. Have you been getting a good amount of sunburn from protesting so much? Well, I'm pretty pink right now. I don't know if you can you can tell, but I, I try to. I come from you know from uh, blue skinned Irish Catholic stock, so I try to wear a, a, a big fedora and uh, a certain amount of sunscreen whenever I go out into the Southern California sun. But um, yeah, we're 
what are we, 50 days into or more into the strike? Yeah, about 53, 54 days into the strike right now. And uh, I tried to do my duty and get out there at least uh, three times a week uh, for, for three or four hours, uh, marching back and forth in front of one of the studios, trying to intimidate them. And we've been hearing from a lot of people who are on, on the lines uh, who've just been like running into people left and right that they've worked with during their career. Has that been your experience? Yes, but, you know, I usually bring a uh, book on tape uh, or a podcast with me and uh, use my use my time walking back and forth to, you know, to l- listen to a book or something. I, I actually have sought out uh, various places. I've tried various different studios. I live in the sort of Culver City area, so I'm very close to Sony. I'm very close to the Culver Studios, which is where Amazon has its headquarters, and I'm right down the street from the Fox Studio. So I've tried out each uh, each of those, and I took a trip to Burbank to go to Warner Brothers to pick at Warner Brothers a couple of times. But um, I'm trying to find one where I don't know a lot of people, so that the chit chat is minimized, and I can just intensely listen to my pods or my uh, or my book on tape. There's something about um, I don't know. I mean, I, if I was if I was a, a sociable, gregarious person, I maybe wouldn't have become a writer. I think I'm, I'm by nature, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best to be, you know, jovial and and uh, and uh, delightful company for you guys right now. But by nature, I'm, I tend to be a little more reserved and kind of want to keep to myself. I was, I was grateful for the pandemic to some extent because uh, it gave me an excuse not to see people and to reinforce my misanthropic impulses. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, so we can start and, and move on to, to the metal. And so we have a question that we started asking after your first appearance. What would be in your ultimate and your craziest rock star rider? So like, what would you ask for in your dressing room if you were a rock star? Oh, well, I mean, if and I had to perform because it's like, I, I, I don't know if I'd want like a lot of, you know, heavy carbohydrates or something. If I if I had to go up on stage and sing and dance, I, I think I'd want to keep it light. I like Coca-Cola. Uh, this is the kind with sugar cane from Mexico. So that's is that but that's not crazy enough. Right. I mean, I'm supposed to want like hookers and blow. Right. Or, or, or only yellow M&Ms or something. I worked on a show in Fiji. I used to live in Fiji. And um, and there was a, a one of the actors had all imported water. So I, I don't know if you've heard of Fiji water. It's kind of a big thing. Like people drink it around the world for its purity, et cetera, et cetera. But she um, decided that she needed pallets of this particular bottled artesian water flown in and so that she could wa- wash her hair brush her teeth, uh, drink it. Um, so she didn't, she wouldn't come to the show unless she had these pallets of this particular water in Fiji. Now I haven't looked at the label. Is that bottled Fiji water actually from Fiji? Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 It was like this guy was walking through the sugarcane field, um, up near Rocky Rocky and sort of like, tump, uh, tripped upon this spring and then was like, Oh, what's this? And it's, like it's an artesian water that just is uh, it sort of gets filtered i think through the rocks of you know so through the, like the coral and that's and just pools under the island so yeah there's an unlimited supply or so they say oh well that's nice to know uh yeah people are known to be kind of dopes about their requirements their personal requirements i mean i don't know i i would i being in a place famous for its great water i i probably would really want to get into it and and uh, sample it uh, sample all the different varieties of, of the water from Fiji but uh yeah my 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 wants and my needs are few you know uh Spencer I'm uh, I'm a simple man I I think uh, a reasonable amount of unhealthy food and uh and uh, hydration materials would be all I would require backstage before I went out uh, and uh you know and ripped it up as, as a uh, as a uh, hair metal performer <laughs> 
Well, and so this week, our producer picked the metal album, and he picked Killswitch Engages as Daylight Dies. So I'll start by talking about my opinion, and then we can discuss it. So Aaron picked this album because I kept saying I wanted more real metal, and I apologized for that request because this was too much. <laughs> this was so much. It was so loud. It was so screamy. It was so metal. I, I couldn't even tell you there was a song that I was like, oh, I liked that. No, I mean, it was a lot. It was loud all the time. Um, I think my favorite song was like uh, was the Arms of Sorrow because at least there was a quiet beginning, and I really enjoyed that couple of seconds of, of quiet, ethereal uh music but i this is probably my least favorite one that we've done through so far uh tim what what do you think yes it wasn't good i mean it's yeah but i'm you know i'm not the i'm not the audience for it i mean i certainly came of age in an era when there was when there were famous and successful metal bands and you know but even then i wasn't a huge fan of the genre i um you know i enjoyed i my my personal lp library was show tunes and uh and a certain amount i don't know a little bit of soft rock and frog rock maybe i think i got about as uh, i got as heavy as let's say uh you know uh uh, Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull, you know, uh, that would be about as, uh, uh, you know, on the spectrum, uh, you know, starting, you know, starting with, let's say James Taylor on one end, uh, and this album on the other, I, you know, I, I probably, my needle is somewhere in the middle in, in terms of my own taste and, and the music I listen to for pleasure. Um, so the, yes, there was very little pleasure listening to the songs. And I must confess, I, I skipped around. I, I got a sampling and there was a sameness to what I was hearing. Um, and I couldn't really make out the lyrics. You know, in the old days, you'd get an album and you'd have the lyrics sheet there with you. Um, and you could sit there and, and, and kind of decipher the poetry a little bit, kind of you know, listen to that, uh, listen to it, and, and try to understand what was trying, what was attempting to be communicated. And uh, without that, I I was a little bit lost there uh, in the yes, in the screaming and the and the relentless thudding of this music. So a thumbs down for me. But again, I'm not the intended audience. Is, is this a popular band? Are, are they? Do they have legions of fans who show up for them in stadiums and stuff? Yes, yes, they are. This is this was something like their fifth or sixth album. They play they play not fair which um was just over here which is this, this slipknot thing um yeah i mean they're a band uh they're from massachusetts so of course you know i yeah. have to have some allegiance to them from westfield um but yeah but i i i'd, I'd have to agree with you like trying to understand what was going on <laughs> was a little bit challenging there was a lot of screaming but then I, what i found was really funny was when the vocals sort of lightened up it sort of had this like Dave Matthews band sort of hoodie and blowfish sort of tone to the singing, which I thought was absolutely hilarious and interesting. And maybe that's, uh, you know, part of their appeal as well is that, you know, it, it, and again, with the metal, like the the rhythm and the guitars, it was just relentless, um, which I think is probably appealing for a lot of people. Yeah. But again, for me, it's not really my cup of tea. But yeah, it, they're certainly a popular band. Are they still very popular? I uh, think so i'm not sure Let yeah me... i looked on on spotify they have 2.6 million average monthly listeners and is this a current album this is this is something that they've released uh recently 2006 2006 oh so okay so this is this would fall into the category of the uh old stuff that the audience at their concerts begs them to play yes yes you know? exactly when they when they try to trot out their new things the audience is like no play that <laughs> 
piece of shit from 2006. <laughs> we want our money back. I didn't watch any of the videos. So, I mean, maybe they're, you know, maybe their live performances are incredible. I would assume. I would assume that there's a great energy at these kind of shows. Spencer, you like heavy metal. You do listen to it. Have you been to concerts? I, I do not. Oh, you do not. Okay. I do not. I, I am a, a avid musical theater fan. That is my expertise. I have some friends who like metal, but I, it's never really been my thing. But there's got to be an energy when you've got, whatever, 40,000 people in a stadium somewhere. Oh, 100%. You know, and, and these guys are up on stage pounding away, just sawing away at their guitars and, and screaming. And everybody's just going, you know, I mean, there's there's got to be a crazy. And, and also you're stoned off your ass. Yeah, I, that's what I was about to say. I think that there's an external reason that you enjoy those concerts. And I don't think it's the music. <laughs> Um, <laughs> not, not the subtlety of the lyrics yeah exactly <laughs> well again i you know if if i'd been presented with a song sheet you know that that kind of had it all laid out maybe maybe we'd find something sublime in there maybe there's a a, a poet hidden behind all the screeching but um uh yeah i i did and i didn't take the time to do the research and, and really dig into their stuff i rather cavalierly said Meh, not for me <laughs> and walked away as you were just saying you know this is one of those things where they release new stuff and and you don't want to listen to new stuff have you had a concert experience like that where uh, a performer has just been playing all their new music and all you want is to hear their old stuff well well sort of i mean i i uh, i don't know maybe a year or two ago uh, i went and saw paul mccartney uh in vegas at uh you know perform live you on his on his most recent tour and it was great it was great to see him you know and be in proximity to sir paul and to hear him um you know perform the hits from obviously from the beatles and from the, the wings era which you know i w i went to a wings concert in 1970 uh you know when i was a young man and uh, at the uh, i think it was here at the inglewood forum uh and uh you know it was a great night and a big show and just wonderful um and so i know those songs i know i knew just about everything he played but periodically he would stop and say, okay, you don't want to hear this, but it's pretty good. I'm going to play it anyway. You know, and he's rich enough that he basically doesn't even apologize. He just sort of like, guys, you're going to sit here. I'm going to play the new stuff and you're going to hear it. And he has, you know, he had kind of a great sense of humor about it. But then he would play, you know, whatever, yesterday. He'd start the, strumming the opening chords of yesterday and people would lose their shit and just, you know, go into, you go into spasms and fall down having a fit, you know, so... Um, he tried to balance it out, but he was well aware that, and I've been to a lot of concerts where that's the case, where, you know, you go to, whatever, you go to, the, you go to see Elton and you want to hear the old songs. You don't want to hear something that he just pulled out of his butt, you know, this morning. I, a couple of years ago, was got to see the band Sticks, And so they've released, I think, two albums in the past couple of years. And they were playing a bunch of stuff from it. And it, it was good. I really liked the new stuff. But I was like, I don't give a shit about the new stuff. I want to hear Come Sail Away and Mr. Roboto sure. and all those, you know, things. But of course, then I was like, oh, I like the new stuff and started listening to the new stuff also. That wasn't why people were there. Yeah. And it's the same thing with Paul McCartney. It's even more so not why people are there. The Chili Peppers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't looked at this, but... Because Paul, I mean, you know, Paul had an album out. He was he was touring in support of his album, you know, mm -hmm. as one does or as one at least traditionally did. And uh, I didn't Spotify the album. I didn't download it or whatever. And so but the songs that he played were delightful. I mean, you know, he's a he's a great composer. I mean, so if you and if you liked Sticks back then and they probably are more seasoned as musicians now, they probably actually might have something to offer. Uh, I'm not sure about this band, uh, well, the the hair band or the uh, hard uh, 
the heavy metal band that we're talking about here, but maybe. Um, and if I had the time and inclination, I, I might research them a little bit more. But I, I, nobody in my circle really listens to this kind of music. So I think if I was here at the house playing it, um, at least aloud, my wife would become disturbed and she would probably make some phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, and my da- and my daughter who yeah would also they they wouldn't know what was up with that and they'd be sure that I'm having some kind of a breakdown. Speaking of disturbing, <laughs> before we get to our, our musical theater, uh, if you just want to talk a little bit more about the strike, what is it exactly that um, the WGA is on strike for? What are their demands? That sort of thing for people who might not necessarily know why they have been on strike for so long. Yeah, the strike is very important. I mean, we did one 15 years ago and I was involved there. And the nature of capitalism, it's it's always going to be that the bosses, the people who are in charge at the, at the studios and now the streaming services are, you know, intent on concentrating as much of the profits from these projects, you know, into their own hands and not distributing it to the people who do the creative work. All way up and down the line that is just that's the nature of of any business enterprise it's about money and the you know the in re, in recent years the disruptors from silicon valley have invaded the entertainment business to a great extent so you know the and the ethos in silicon valley has always been sort of anti-union uh and um hostile to the workers in terms of trying to extract as much labor out of them for as little as they possibly can and you know the labor situation in hollywood since the 1940s has been pretty good. There there were a series of strikes in the the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, that set the table. And there's a pushback from the the new people who are running Amazon and uh, and Netflix and 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 that that they don't they they rejiggered the situation so that writers are 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 not getting to enjoy the benefit of the work that they create and and the actors and directors and the crew people as well. You know, I've run a, a number of TV shows over the years, and the new regime coming in is you know it's always a battle you know to get as much money as you can to share with the people on your crew to have you know to have um you know they'll fight you to the death to have that second uh wardrobe assistant that you need on the set so that things move more quickly who who is making very little money and yet then the bosses will get on their private jet and 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 spend you know $400,000 to cross the country a couple of times to go to you know to go to a fancy party or something for themselves you know the perquisites of the people at the top are 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 just so removed from the money that is being distributed to people down the line and the writers it always seems that it falls to the writers to hold the line on this stuff because i think of the different unions uh involved in making uh, television movies the Writers tend to be the crankiest and the uh, and maybe the smartest, but uh, we, you know we we so we end up fighting these battles every ten or fifteen years, um, and then the benefit of the fight trickles down to everybody else in the industry. So we, so, I mean, again, for example, you know, in the, back in the sixties, people didn't, the uh, writers didn't get residuals for the work they did. You have to, I mean, think, uh, the, the, maybe think of it in this, these terms. It's like, if you write a book, if you write a novel, a piece of fiction, it has your name on it. You own that. That is your creative work. And if I want to make a movie out of it or make a hat out of it or a, you know, a cartoon show or a, a, anything else, I have to pay you forever. You know, you own that. That's your creative work. Um, and, uh, you know, or if we write a play, you know, the, the, in the dramatist guild, the, the playwright is preeminent and you can't change a word of the play. You can't mess it up. You can't do productions of it without paying them in, in the TV and the movie business. We, we traded that right of ownership, that right of authorship that is built into the work we do. We've traded that away for what 
what's called residuals for, you know, subsequent payments. You'll produce our show, the show that we want to do. And, and you, and you, the studio will get the ancillary rights. You, if, if you guys want to fire our ass and make the show without us, you can do it. You know, if you guys want to do a, you know, a, a reboot, you know, which is what people do, you know, they can do it. And the, the original writer uh, may or may not even get to participate financially. So what, and one of the things that we're definitely seeing is that these um, new streaming services, and the and the trend in the studio system is to roll back on the residuals and the and and basically try to do they do like what they call buyouts where they they basically give you a a a, a, a set amount of money up front and then you don't own this anymore. So even if it's even if, I mean I did a show that was based on my childhood, you know, and basically I gave that to the Walt Disney Company, you know, and it's my story about the people in my family and and this kind of stuff. It's it no longer belongs to me. It belongs to the Walt Disney Company. So that and that's a fine transaction that you make knowingly but but part of the deal is that you you get treated with respect and you get uh, a certain a certain share of the money and the lot of the writer in Hollywood has again I'm being long-winded but the lot of the writer in Hollywood has gotten a lot worse just in the last five or six years you know when I for the 30 years I've been doing TV most of the time in network TV you would do a season of a show could be 22 24 26 episodes of television and writers get paid per episode so you would make a certain amount of money per episode and that would add up to a decent life for for writers even writers who weren't superstar writers you know would have a decent living they have a middle class living they'd be able to survive in in LA or New York with that money that they made working 22 episode seasons well you know Netflix does six or eight episode seasons and 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 they've had holds on writers preventing them from working out of the shows so suddenly you've cut in thirds you know what a writer's income is for a year and you know they're negotiating the releases so that people can go work on a second show but the point is that then you have to scramble and find a second show to you know to keep yourself occupied for you know for the other uh, eight months out of the year and and they've done a lot of things like that they basically you know to they employ writers like for terms of like 10 weeks on a show that's it they work for 10 weeks on on the show and the rest of the year they're on their own they have to go and find other work they're limiting the number of writers in a writer's room I mean when I was on the Roseanne show it was ridiculous but we had like 20 writers on that show and a lot of that was just you know Roseanne was crazy and she would meet somebody on a bus and say come write for my show you know but so in addition to the sort of silly strange people that she brought in as writers on the show there was a core of, of eight or ten really solid writers who, who carried the ball on that show from, you know from season to season from episode to episode and they were very necessary but they have these writing staffs now they're where they're like four writers on the show and that's all they'll let you have they won't give you the money to hire additional people so you know so there's, there's so those are the two main points i think that the writers guild is concerned about is the size of writers staffs and the compensation down the line for um, you know the subsequent use of the material uh, and, and and a little bit of respect on uh, for that stuff but I mean the same thing applies you know to actors I mean if you're an act uh, the middle class of the acting community has been gutted you know yes you know sure Tom Cruise is gonna get whatever a hundred million dollars when you know for this movie that that he did or whatever you know there's always going to be those guys um but I know lots of actors who are you know, the guy you hired to come in and play the cop in the scene the the you know the funny person and that you've worked with a million times who's going to play the the waiter or the or the substitute teacher or whatever you know those people are barely getting by and a lot of them are driving uber cars and, and working at other gigs because they've turned acting and writing and to some extent directing into a gig job where you know, it's you can't really make the living that you once did off of it so you know the directors have settled you know they're they're a different thing directors a lot of the time are 
in weird way closer to the studios and the networks than the other people involved in make TV and movies. But um, the actors could still go on strike. They're going to they're going to be voting uh, by the end of the month whether they will go out on strike. If they go out on strike, then that's a big deal because we will we will shut down production. Um, you know, there there won't be new shows coming from America. So you, I mean, viewers won't notice. I mean, again, I don't know how exposed you are to American television and stuff, but you know, the Jimmy Kimmel's and the you know and those guys aren't on the air right now. Those those shows went down immediately because those shows are topical. They the when you know when Stephen Colbert comes out on stage, he wants to tell jokes about what's going on in the world. So without writers, he's shut down for now. Um, but it's going to be a few months before people really notice that oh my my favorite cop show or my favorite sitcom or my favorite lawyer show or doctor show doesn't have new episodes on in September like we expected them to. Um, so it, it it could be a long haul on this strike because we have to wait for the studios and the and the and the streaming services to feel the pain of not having this product that we generate for it. Uh, so it could be a while, but um, I think it will be helpful if the actors vote to strike as well because you know they can still go and produce some of the scripts that have already been written, and there are some shows that are still in production. But we've done a pretty good job shutting down production. I mean, what's great is the craft unions and the Teamsters have been pretty good about not crossing our picket line. So if we're picketing at a studio or at a location where they're shooting, um, the the trucks will turn around and go away, and it'll be and shut down production for that day. And we've done a, a lot of that in LA and in New York, and in, and a few other places too. So uh, anyway, I know that was long winded, but that's kind of my current take on where we're at. I I think it it could be it could easily go until like November or December, or it could get settled very quickly. And I think it's more likely to get settled quickly if the actors um, decide to strike as well, because that will really intensify things from the perspective of the studio and streaming bosses. Anyways, it looks like Daylight has died on another metal album, so we're going to get ready for a night out. <laughs> G'day listeners, Aaron here. We thought we'd better send a spy to Broadway to check out the shows for us. So here for today's review is our Broadway spy, Spencer. This week we're going to be talking about The Cottage, the new comedy on Broadway. This play is written by Sandy Rustin and directed by the incredible Jason Alexander of Seinfeld fame. This cast is incredible, consisting of Laura Bell Bundy from Legally Blonde, Lily Cooper, who recently has been in POTUS and Tootsie on Broadway. And you have Eric McCormick of Will and Grace fame. Nahal Joshi, who was in the closing company of Phantom of the Opera. Alex Moffat from Saturday Night Live. And Dana Steingold from Beetlejuice. This cast is crazy. This show is so funny with an incredibly intricate set that just every time you look at it, you notice something new. This farce, I mean, that's what it is. It's a farce, is so funny and smart and well done this cast is really at the top of their game and with this incredible direction by jason alexander who truly knows how to be a comedic actor from his many years on seinfeld and knows physical comedy i mean this show has a lot of physical comedy and what he does with the direction in it is just fantastic some really cool costumes as well with some really, just really fantastic hair and wig design and some little slight changes to the company's togetherness over the course of the run is just seeing how much fun that they have on this stage. This cast is so incredible. You have until October 29th to see this wonderful, hilarious play on Broadway. 
You're listening to Crash and Treasure. I'm Spencer, that's Matt, and we're joined by a returning guest, as the French call him, Timothée Doyle, but we know him as Sim Doyle. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if you know that the ballet dancers in Australia held the curtain on Friday night um, from Aussie Ballet because they haven't, there's been no negotiation since before COVID. Um, and so we're seeing it with writer's strike and we're starting to see it um, with performers as well. And yeah, so I'm I'm really curious. I'm actually, I'm a SAG-AFTRA member, so I'm curious to see how that's all going to play out as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. And we appreciate the support that we've gotten from writers and creative people in other countries. There's been a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of, of um, you know, unity of standing together. You know, one of the things they're kind of counting on, especially places like Netflix, which is such an international footprint, is, oh, well, we can just fill it up with shows from Korea. You know, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll put up seven different versions of Squid Game or whatever. Um, and, and, but obviously they want shows in English, you know, for the American audience to watch. The American audience audience has a as a uh, notorious bigotry toward anything that's in a foreign language and somehow an inability to, to read subtitles so um they will you know uh, they they it, we're kind of relying on on writers from Canada and from the UK and from Australia sort of not to scab uh during this um and during this labor action and to be sympathetic to the situation because again whatever happens here in Hollywood will trickle down throughout the industry in fact the, you know uh, somebody from Apple was interviewed and said that very thing is that the reason that they feel they have to hold the line on paying the writers more and giving them better participation in the back end and blah 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 and more commitments to hiring more writers and all that is that if we if that happens here well then the writers they're working with in other countries will ask for the same thing and that's just you know intolerable to them in terms of their uh the profits that they expect and 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 desire so um you know we're fighting for everybody Definitely, definitely. When I was in New York in um in uh, September, November, I can't remember. There was also there was a big uh, protest. It's about time protest, you know, because productions weren't hiring. People were, felt that they were being forced to go to work, especially during that COVID period or this sort of burnout mental health period, and there were there weren't enough uh, standby stage managers or standby performers and all this sort of stuff. And so, and I said to one of the stage managers at that rally, I said, "What happens here in New York is absolutely going to affect the live performance in Australia." So that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, no, and, and we're living in a time of very exciting labor action. I mean, there's a lot of we there's a lot of labor stuff going on here in the United States. You know, our our uh, UPS drivers are about to go out on strike, and you know, and there, and uh, we've had unity at some of our marches with like you know the janitorial staff that work on these studio lots and in the buildings you know around them. They're they're out they're out there with their, their orange vests on marching with us, you know, uh, and in support. I've never seen so much unanimity except for the fucking directors uh, uh, in the in the entertainment community uh you know from the from the crew folks and the teamsters and just everybody and the actors everybody up and down the line now we'll see if it bears out in terms of their voting but i'm you know i uh, look i've had a very good career i've i've done well and 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 been extremely lucky and you know i'm in the 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 third act of whatever this career is of that i've enjoyed the concern here is for the younger people i mean when i'm out on the picket line there i mean you, you ask about like talking to people it's like the truth is in a lot of cases there's some extremely young people there that have no idea who i am and uh you know i i mean i'll occasionally i'll see somebody with a mop of uh of gray head or a or a hair with a head with no mop whatsoever you know uh, who i know but the bulk of the people that are really agitating and really um, aggressively carrying the ball on this strike are young people who are just getting started many of them much more diverse than the generation 
with which I came into the business. And, you know, those opportunities have been presented in recent years, much greater diversity. Uh, you know, it's always been a, uh, always been a business that, that uh, prized youth, but, you know, there's a new generation and they are coming to this with an attitude of, of, of um, respect for labor that maybe past generations, you know, haven't in this business and in this country. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to be fine one way or the other, but I'm really, you know, I, I, out there for the younger people for the next generation because i don't want them to i want them to have some semblance of the great experience i've had i've loved writing television it's the greatest thing in the world to sit in a room with seven or eight other funny people and kick around ideas and try to come up with a story and then write the dialogue and stuff and do it in a group with in a group situation and to be lavishly paid for it and they bring you snacks and meals you know it's it's been a good run and uh i want that for the next generation i want them to have the same good experience. I don't want them to just be gig workers who are punching a clock and and barely eking by and having to, you know, having to work uh, at some other side gig in order to pay their bills. We'll discuss more about the strike later. So we can go ahead now and move on to the musical. Aaron picked a slice of Saturday night. So before hitting the dance floor, Matt, you reviewed the musical this week. What did you think of this little-known show? I'm sorry. Do you guys know this musical? Have you have you seen this musical before or heard of it? No idea. Never heard of it. This one has been pulled out of the trunk and dusted off. Is that because Aaron has hit them all and now he's really scraping the bottom of the barrel? Yeah, I mean, or is this just is this an esteemed musical that I, I'm just not familiar with because I'm from the United States and this originated in the UK? So I believe Aaron tried to hit one that both Math and I didn't know, and that is something that is pretty difficult. So I think he just <laughs> uh, pulled it out of a trunk somewhere. No, it's definitely a West End musical. And I mean, and we, we can talk a bit about, in fact, I wanted to ask you a bit more about this, both of you, and what your opinion is about. Yeah, like West End musicals tend to be their own thing at times. And sometimes they're popular here in Australia, but not so popular in America. Um, like We Will Rock You, Ben Elton's We Will Rock You was a huge hit over here. I don't think it's really been a big hit in America. Yeah, it's not, yeah. It played briefly in Vegas. They they did a tour here. Yeah, they did a tour here. For I saw it in Vegas. I, they did a cut down version that was like 90 minutes. And yes. Stuff. But again, it's just a jukebox musical. Yes. So which brings me. Thank you for that lovely segue, Tim, because that brings me into the review that I've written, because I've always been somewhat troubled by jukebox musicals, especially my sworn enemy, Jersey Boys. I just have never warmed to that show because I just don't want to hear Broadway performers recreating classic songs that I've enjoyed by. By the original artists call me old-fashioned but now i know with a slice of saturday night that what gets me even more upset <laughs> is a pastiche musical especially one about the 60s yes so i can't say that the musical stylings of a slice of saturday night are not clever giving us tastes of the seekers the beatles sunny and share hand drive hokey pokey the list goes on and these are not subtle copies. Riffs of popular tunes are ripped off nearly exactly. Oh So Bad has the Love Me Do harmonica riff. There's a tribute to Cliff Richards in the song Cliff. Sentimental Eyes sounds like leader of the pack. If you had put into chat GPT, I want some 60s tunes. It <laughs> sort of feels like it might have pumped out a slice of Saturday Night. No disrespect to the Heathers brothers who wrote this, like to even write a musical. And, and this was a popular musical in the West End. Uh, it toured and came back to the West End. So I definitely never want to disrespect musical writers because it's impossible. And I've never written a musical. So good on them. <laughs> but instead of um, 
classic songs. I mean, ultimately, this reminded me of Shout, the mod musical. I don't know if you heard that one, which had some really great, like, actual tunes from the 60s. And that's what I wanted, uh, songs with lyrics that were clever enough to be remembered in popular music. But instead, we got a song about Twiggy from a busty girl who wants her only bits to stick out to be her knees, her elbows, her shoulder blades, or her hip bones. She laments about being an old-fashioned girl, meaning that she is normally shaped. And I don't think I can buy into that sentiment. I think it's parody. I suppose it is, but I didn't find it particularly funny. The kicker, however, was a song called P.E., which I realized early on was not going to be a song about physical education. And it's not. It's about a boy who cannot control himself when he meets a girl at the dance, and then he gets close to her and, uh uh-oh, premature ejaculation. Uh, it got me wondering about the difference between Broadway shows and West End shows. I've often found West End shows to be much more concerned about popularity uh, and even commonality rather than sophisticated storytelling. And this one could be my master's thesis about this particular topic. Overall, I struggled to get through a dramatic storyline, which consisted almost entirely of whether guys and girls were going to hook up and get it on at a club on a Saturday night. I mean, I could go to a dive bar in Sarasota, Florida and get as much drama. Did I mention here is a song about how it's not a proper Saturday night without a fight? Saturday night's all right for fighting indeed. Uh, for me, this was one out of five stars. Yeah. I, you know, again, it would have been helpful if it's a show that I could see, you know, and I actually went up and found some things on YouTube, uh, you know, briefly, and I saw some of the numbers performed uh, uh, on uh, on YouTube. There's what looks to be a, 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 it doesn't look like a multi-million dollar production. I'm not quite sure who did this production that's on YouTube, but it, it looks to be somewhat professional, somewhat amateur. I'm not quite sure the level the level of employment involved. But, um, you know, it didn't show the show off in the best light. Um, as you say, it's pastiche, which basically means they're you know, recreating the feeling of, of songs that are familiar and the riffs felt familiar. And some of the songs were kind of cute. You know, uh, it was hard with some of the accents for me to hear how witty the, the lyrics were. But I thought that there was some sweetness on and uh, and knowingness about what it's like to be 17 years old and to and to go out to a, a club to meet girls or for girls to meet boys, certainly in a more innocent time. It's set, I think, in 1964. You know, so there is a sweetness to that. There was an accessibility to a lot of that. There was some comedy, you know, in in some of that. The characters were broadly drawn. But yeah, I didn't ever hook into it as a story. You know, it's in addition to being sort of a pastiche of music, it's sort of a pastiche of of story. It's it's kind of like some very familiar elements reassembled, you know, and presented as if they were something new. But I, I look at a show like this because as something that could be very nicely produced in a small space for an amateur company you know, you could do this in a bar. I mean, you could basically clear off the dance floor in a in a little club and do a performance of this. And that kind of intimacy and proximity and, you know, the the reality of the setting, it, it might actually it might actually be fairly involving for an audience sitting at at, uh, at cabaret tables and 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 watching and watching these young people kind of sing about sex and and uh, and getting together. So I'd be very curious what a scaled up production of this show looks like. You know, you could I guess you could throw ten million dollars at it and do it on Broadway with uh, um, you know, with a cast of 40 and, and amazing lights and a full orchestra. But uh, it probably would be good uh, pouring good 
with money after bad. Ultimately, I, I don't think there's enough of a show there for this to be something that people would really get excited about. But in a modest setting uh, with modest aspirations and, you know, talented singers up close, I think it could be a fairly enjoyable evening. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's fair enough. And I think it does get done a lot by amateur societies and universities and things. In fact, the university I just worked for is doing something next term that has Saturday night in the title. And I'm now curious if it, if it might be this one. Uh oh. Yeah, I mean, certainly like there's there's a lot of fun to be had. Yeah, but you know, there's a need for shows like that. That I mean, every show shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be a, a multi-million dollar extravaganza um, because it's it's sort of like the way the movie business has gotten inflated with Marvel movies and stuff. You know, they're everyone's watching the box office every weekend because if the film that they just produced doesn't open to seventy five million dollars, then they'll never get back their two hundred million dollar investment. Well, the same thing happens, and and I think Spencer, you might be able to speak to this more uh, about the current Broadway situation, but there's a certain amount of overblownness to musicals especially now the scale of something like in new york they have new york new york the musical which just opened i think we're getting back to the future which is coming into us from england uh, especially you talk about the difference with west end matt they they seem to there's not a movie from the last 50 years that that somebody on the west end hasn't said hey that could be a musical you know we've had pretty woman and we've had mrs doubtfire and and so and again some of them originate here some of them but but it seems like there's a lot of them in the uk and then some of them make it over and some of them don't so it's the exact problem that the movie business has which is you know everything is sequels and reboots of the familiar I mean, this this New York, New York that's in New York right now, and again, speak of it if you've seen it, it has nothing to do with the Martin Scorsese movie, or very little to do with the Martin Scorsese movie, but it recycles that song and and some of the attitudes and the setting you know, from that movie. So they think we'll trick people who were fans of that movie from, you know, from whatever, 1980 or whatever year it was. We'll trick them to come to spend $500 a seat to come and see our show on Broadway. And we'll give them this other thing, which may or may not work, but certainly has nothing to do with it. The use of IP, the exploitation of IP is an excuse to spend money and as a backstop to losing the the tons of money that these things lose. It's, it's kind of a failed venture. Well, and what's it, what's interesting though about what you're saying though is we've seen it where they become hits and we've seen it where they don't. A great example is Life of Pi, which is IP didn't do well on Broadway. They won three Tony Awards and still are closing a month and a half after the Tony Awards. And sometimes it works. I mean, look, even something that's like broadly IP, Wicked is broadly IP. Like that's something that, you know, it's based off The Wizard of Oz. It's based off a book. That's something that obviously it's been running for 20 years. You have a show like Mean Girls that did very well. I, I think Back to the Future will do very well. I know I, for one, am very excited for it. Then you have a show like an Almost Famous that's a very beloved movie that didn't do well it closed after a month and so i think especially on broadway they're starting to see that those ip based things are much more of a risk here than doing a sequel or a remake of a movie is but it's all ip i mean all of those things whether it's a sequel or a remake Again, to me, it's sort of like uh, one of the charming surprises of this Broadway season was Kimberly Akimbo, which is not a huge show. I think there's, I don't know, eight people in it or something. I mean, it's not a massive show. And this, oh, there you go. And the scale of it is. I've seen it six times. It's my favorite. Okay, good. Well, then you know more about it than I do. But I, I was delighted by it. I thought it was great. My wife loved it. She saw it. She dragged me to it. I went reluctantly, but I was totally won over by it. It's a weird concept. I guess it's ver based on the prior version of a straight play that this the, that yeah. the playwright wrote. But but it's good, and it's you know it, it analogous, I think, in a way to 
the kind of uh, modest scale that, uh, uh, getting it back to our topic, that a slice of Saturday night sort of aspires to, that you can do a show that doesn't, you know, that doesn't um, promise a panoramic discussion of New York in the 1940s with all the characters and all the things and the noise and construction workers and um, and, a, and a set that, that, you know, wouldn't believe. Or there's ways to do this and please an audience and, and that don't rely entirely on, on spectacle and familiarity. You know, I, uh, a slice of Saturday night, I don't think is good in that respect, but I think there are ways to do it. And the talented people behind Kimberly, I think, proved that this season. And it was, it was very heartened to see, uh, you know, its success. Uh, again, I'm not, is it is it successful? I, I guess it's doing well, probably doing better now than Tony's. Yeah, it won five Tony Awards, including Best Musical. But is it making money? Uh, they are now making money. They were not before. Right. But now they're now making a lot more money than they were. And that's the value of the Tony Award. Yeah, and that's a whole other thing with the strike as well, that that, that impacted the Tony Awards. Obviously, less than people originally, there were no, not going to be Tony Awards. So the fact that there were at all is something that I know myself in the industry are very thankful for yeah and they did a good show i mean you know we were spared all the this uh, writing jokes for an award show is not what um skilled writers aspired to when they were dreaming of one day you know uh, creating work for television and the films you know the um I think everyone was happy that they didn't have a lot of uh, cutesy banter between yes. between awkward celebrities up there. They just banged into they just banged from award to award, and they <laughs> you know and they let the singing and dancing sort of tell the story. I mean, obviously there were some clunky things and stuff, but it felt very human. It was I think it was a success as an award show, and I hope people don't say aha we don't need writers. It's like well yeah award shows are one thing, but try try doing an episode of Grey's Anatomy without writers. Yeah. Well, and that's what I think was interesting with the Tony Awards was I know I was in a bar full of theater fans who we all saw every show this season. So we were talking about how the performances and how great they were. And then we were like, wait, the performances aren't for us. We aren't the judge of whether the performances are good. They're for people who aren't already buying tickets to these shows. We had all already seen all these shows. We're going to buy more tickets to these shows. The performances, whether they work or not, has to do with whether the normal public who is watching buys tickets to those shows. And especially for a show like Kimberly, it needs it. Yeah. And the and the, the um, Jodie Comer show now has has gone into profit. I think yes. as a direct result of her, you know, getting a, a Tony Award and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, no, that's why the Writers Guild relented. Initially, the writers said, no, you, you can't cross the picket line. You know, um, you, you can't do the show. We're going to or we're going to pick it if you do the show. And and hopefully your you know, your uh, craftspeople will respect the picket line. But then they relented because they're sympathetic to the actors and they're sy sympathetic to the economics of Broadway. And um, so they made you know, they made a an exception in this case, which I think was was well reasoned. Uh, everyone I think everyone was happy that that it played out that way. Yeah. But uh, I, was, I, was, I was thinking, you know, uh, Matt, you were talking about how you don't like pastiche, but you just performed in the producers, which is essentially a, a pastiche. Right. I mean, yeah. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I think you don't like this kind of pastiche, or I, yeah. I mean, what, I do, what, what do you think of like you know Greece? Greece is very cute. Uh, I mean, Greece has some pretty cute songs in it, but you know, but it's it's a it's a sim. But I think maybe there's more wit to the to the the, the songs in Greece than there there are to the, this particular thing. Yeah, well, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, pastiche is just sort of, you know, a way of kind of honoring a style that you enjoy and, you know, and imitating it. But obviously, there's levels of skill involved. And the people who did Grease and, and obviously Mel Brooks and his collaborators doing uh, the producers, they brought it to a level uh, of just of skill and entertainment that, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the producers is like this compendium of 20th century comedy. It's got, you know, every kind of gag in it, you know, I mean, all just like sight gags and spit takes and just kind of, you know, it's this blend of vaudeville and burlesque and you know oogling the hot uh, assistant and and jokes about the showgirls and you know it has this very retro uh feeling to it and you, you could take that show and put it in a spaceship and send it to outer space and it would teach uh you know some foreign some foreign intelligence a lot about what people in the 20th century in, in, a, in america thought was funny um you know it might not you know, it might not make them think mm. well of, a, of us and spare us from invasion, but they would learn a lot about the, especially sort of the Jewish humor coming out of New York, you know, from the 1920s, you know, uh, through the end of the 20th century, the, that all that wonderful kind of your show of shows, you know, stuff that those that guys like uh, Brooks were involved in. And, um, you know, uh, so it's. I, I think it's a wonderful show, a uh, very, very enjoyable show, and I saw, I saw it, I saw it several times with various different casts. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I saw, I, I saw it in LA as well with um, Jason Alexander and um, Martin, which was yeah. very funny. It was very sticky uh, the night I was there. The two of them were really milking oh, the yeah. gags. I think uh, <laughs> Martin Short was doing this whole bit about like getting up off the couch where he got slid onto the floor. I bet by the time they were done touring with it, those two had added fifteen minutes to the show. I'm sure. Uh, just with the sticks and the takes that they added along the way you know that's what they, they say uh when zero mistel was doing fiddler on the roof you know the show got padded just thicker and thicker it you know he added like 20 minutes to the show just with all the you know the the business that he that he created along the way you know uh, or i guess not fiddler i think was it fiddler or was a funny thing happened the way before anyway the, yes so when when set out on a tour these guys will often go a little nuts with these shows and and uh and, and beat the hell out of them. Yeah, but it's interesting, though, getting back to the writing, because, um, again, like, Thomas Meehan wrote the book with that, with Mel Brooks, and um, and it's so precise, yeah. and it runs for, it, it like, with Susan Stroman production, runs for two hours and 40 minutes with a 20-minute interval, and there's not a second to spare. And we had a similar thing happen where our show got padded out a little bit by um, performers being a bit indulgent. Um, and there was one night during the commercial run of it in Melbourne, um, which was the Susan Stroman production, where we didn't do the playoff because the musicians put down their instruments because they hit the three hour mark. Wow. And that that was a big problem, obviously, because we didn't finish the show. Yeah. So you do have to respect those writers. And um, yeah. And, and it's interesting that you brought up Greece when we were just talking about a, a slice of Saturday night. And I'd be interested to know if there is even a book in this or if it just moves from number to number to number. Because Greece actually, you know, for for what it's worth, like its exposition, like in that first um, scene between the alma mater leading up to Summer Nights, there's so much information in there. And you have to like, it's like an yeah, eight yeah. minute scene and it has to be done precisely and with pace because people want to get to that first number. So that's, yeah, it's, that's so interesting. And writers are just in musical theater are so precise and every word and every bit of punctuation is so precise in a musical. The discussion about musicals is always, does the song forward the plot or does it stall the plot? I mean, and, 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 that, and that's true in all sorts of writing. You know, you can have funny bits that you write into a half hour sitcom and you end up having to cut it later because it kills the momentum of the scene. You can't, you know, you can't move forward. But it's just 
especially a problem in a musical. I mean, you know, you've got to have the songs, you know, be this thing that propels the show forward as opposed to, uh, you know, people looking at their watch for 20 minutes, you know, while they wait for this big number to end. And, you know, and depending on your mood, sometimes, I mean, I don't know, you know, sometimes if I watch an old musical like Hello, Dolly, or that, that thing got so overblown. I mean, just every tiny number in that show ended up being a 20-minute production number with a cast of thousands and people, you know, doing somersaults and jumping in the air, like, or Oliver, the numbers just expanded and expanded when they made these movies because they felt like at the time, well, we got to give people something big, you know, because they're going out to the movie theater to see these shows. And you watch them now on your little home screen and you think, okay, uh, you know, kind of you, you start pushing the fast fast forward button sometimes, you know, depending on the show. There's a skill to writing these things. I've never written one, but I know a lot of people who have. I mean, my wife worked on a show with uh, the guy who wrote this current play, the one about corn. I haven't seen it yet. Spencer? Shuck. Shuck. Huge, huge fan. I forget the writer's name. Oh, good. The, he's a sitcom writer. Robert Horn. So he moved from sitcoms to theater, and he's having a great time doing that stuff. I mean, and if any of our listeners listen to my other podcast and the EGOT goes to, they know that I'm a sucker for a good book in a musical. Uh, so many of these shows, my one problem with them is their book. The script just doesn't work with the songs. Shucked is my favorite book of the season. Sorry, Kimberly Kimbo. It's so <laughs> incredibly funny. Kimberly Kimbo is my second favorite but I love that show. It's so great. Yeah, Kimberly Akimbo, for those who haven't seen it, I mean, they pull off a magic trick here because it's a story about a person who's got an illness. I mean, spoiler alert. And the implication at the very end of it is that she's going to die. And you know that as you ride through this story, but that's, you know, but that's kind of what's hanging over the whole story. And they pull off a magic trick. They, they make it a happy ending. It feels really happy when you go out of the theater. And I can't even fully explain how they do it, but they did it. They do it really well. For that, I give them plaudits. But I, yeah, I haven't seen Shucked yet. But uh, I'll probably, I'll probably get dragged to it at some point uh, during our next New York visit. I love that it's a sitcom writer, and I, that's because when I teach my acting students as well, my music theater students, I do talk about sitcom and about um, television and the similarity to musical theater in terms of the energy that um, that is brought to both of them and the pace. Yeah, and so the, I'm, yeah. I haven't seen Shucked. I'm really curious about it, and now I'm even more curious now that I've heard about the book. And that's a sitcom writer that's brought brought it. Maybe that's the marriage made in heaven is sitcom and musical theater. It's a joke a second. It's so funny. And it's because the story is simple. They're not trying to sell a, oh, this thing happens, this thing. Oh my God, so dramatic, blah, blah. No, it's a story about family and love and friendship and corn. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I think a lot of that kind of storytelling has fallen out of the television and movies recently i mean one of my sort of one of my pet peeves one of my beefs you know is the fact that uh sort of our laugh out loud comedies that i was involved have been involved in and then continue to work on um are have kind of fallen somewhat out of fashion they're viewed as being old-fashioned um because they have joke because someone in character comes in and says something you know funny uh that is viewed a lot of time as cheap now and the the tendency has been to have to leave the comedy up to the personalities of the improv trained actors who, who come and inhabit the, 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 the roles on these, tel on these half hour television shows. So I find a lot of, com uh, of comedy, so-called comedy television and comedy movies to be actually comedy light that we could hardly describe them as a comedy. I mean, they're, they're very good and they're good stories and they're interesting and the actors are all skilled, but I like a good laugh out loud comedy. I like one that where the goal is to, is to make people, you know, really laugh and forget their trouble. 
troubles. Um, I'm not saying that I like that exclusively. I have a lot of respect for all sorts of storytelling. Like like this weekend, we have this um, Jennifer Lawrence movie opening up here i don't know if it's opening over there too i'm very excited for it right and i'm i mean again i don't know jennifer lawrence i don't know the guy uh he's a sitcom writer the guy who wrote the people who wrote it but i don't know them personally i don't have any money in this thing but i'm rooting for it i want that to succeed i want to see you know the time was you would go to the movie theater and you'd see a lot of comedy and comedies have fallen out of the movie and and comedies fallen off the tv i mean you know there are only a handful of of sitcoms on network television now you know and maybe two or three of them are good. Um, there are very few that are really strong anymore. And it used to be one of the mainstays of television. But, you know, the the fashion seems to have changed. And and, uh, and especially with the streaming services, they have, you know, they have to look to the international audience. And a lot of the time, comedy doesn't travel as well as, you know, a cop show or a lawyer show or a doctor show or whatever. Uh, you know, a, a grim procedural, a, a murder show um, will travel better. You could sell it to other, uh, to other areas of the world more easily than a idiosyncratic comedy um, based on the mores of people living in New York or Los Angeles. So um, the, the tendency has been away from that. And the comedies that do get produced a lot of time are, are, are what a lot of us, they're, they're kind of grounded in misery. They're grounded in unhappy people. Somebody's wife just died or somebody's, um, you know, somebody's recovering from an abusive relationship or blah, blah, blah. They, there's this tendency to give them this dark underbelly of tragedy, um, you know, so that the, you know, they can kind of, the, the feeling is that that gives the story more depth and credibility um, you know, but but I don't know. I mean, I, 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 if I if I get pitched another story about a guy who's got a dead wife, you know, and he's and I mean, it's a it's a cheap trick to me a lot of the time to make the main character sympathetic, you know, oh, he's gonna, his wife's dead and he still loves her. And that's why the, the audience is rooting for him to get back on that wagon and start dating again or whatever. Or he's he's struggling to raise the kids on his own or whatever. I mean, there are 50 of those out there on TV right now. Dead guy, guys with dead wives, you know, or wives with dead guys. But, you know, there's the, 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 that kind of thing, you know, becomes, you know, a, a, an element that feels classy and grounded and dramatic and gives Gives you places to go in the storytelling that are you know have more drama and and stuff and um i don't know i miss you know i, I like like i like what we do in the shadows which is a bunch of goofy vampires living in a house together uh i i just i love that show i just can't get enough of it and those you know you know matt berry that guy he's just everything he does he just cracks me up um you know i i like that kind of thing again not exclusively but i'm just saying i don't want to i don't want to you know slam any specific shows so you know because whatever i might need a job but um, but there, but that's the kind of thing that I gravitate more toward, and that I wish there was more of in TV and in movies. So you know, so Jennifer Lawrence, you know, make money this weekend, do really well. Try to teach these boneheads that a comedy can succeed, so that so that everything isn't people in spandex going and shooting electric bolts out of their hands and eyes at each other, you know, and fighting, and you know, I mean, so much, so much fucking spandex and 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 blue lightning bolts coming out of people's hands, you know, and and they all have father problems, they all have daddy issues. My dad died unfairly. My dad was a scientist who turned me into a monster. My dad, you know, it's like enough of that <laughs> well, so kind of kind of related to to what you're saying uh to move on to some of our additional questions g'day listeners aaron here while you're topping up your coffees did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time go to www 
thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Landing with a thud that echoes throughout the whole cottage, Toniston instantly rips off the manky shoes gifted to him by Milford and tosses them into the corner behind a blue barrel. Without a second thought, the bully races down the hallway to the backmost room of the house and leaps behind his uncomfortable makeshift hay bed, then waits, and waits, and then waits some more, until finally, what seems like an eternity later, muffled growls start vibrating through the thin walls of Cubpaw's cottage. He tries to control his breathing, but his heart is racing way too fast. Toniston ducks down further. Nothing should be able to see him, but he can't be sure they won't smell him. The gruff growling grows louder. Toniston presses his ear against the cold, chipped, chalky wall. He thinks he can make out phrases like, Where is it? And, Give us the merge, though not much else. It's all too mumbled, and he's shaking too much. But it doesn't matter anymore. The front door of the cottage slams open with a harder, louder, cracking thud than it ever had before. A dozen or so stomping footsteps enter. The cottage shakes uncontrollably as if it is as terrified as our friend the bully is. Toniston panics. He's trapped in a corner with a slew of sharks on his trail. He makes a sudden rash decision. Ripping aside the thick animal hide curtain, Toniston leaps through the small oval-shaped window headfirst, landing on a crate filled with hay sitting outside it. Mustering every ounce of manliness he has not to react verbally as he lands with a crunch on the sharp, pin-like hay. It pierces his skin in several places, but thankfully, in his panicked state, the bully becomes numb to the pain. Counting his blessings, but not his chickens, Toniston struggles out of the crate by throwing his legs over and levering himself up, causing the coral underneath his feet to snap. He loses balance and tumbles. To describe the pain of tumbling face first down a steep hill of hard, sharp, deadly shaped coral would require far too many swear words than this author would be allowed to publish. So let's just say it hurt a lot. With one last somersault, Toniston's legs fly first over the cliff's edge. Crunch. His left hand grabs hold of the outmost jagged knob of coral. The stocky body of the ten-year-old child sways rapidly back and forth like some sort of death-defying pendulum. He gasps for air, or from shock, not even Toniston can tell. All he knows is above him, a deadly coral cliff and deadlier sharks. Below him, larger, sharper coral under a sea of giant, sharp spikes of natural metal. His head throbbing and vision too blurred with bright red splotches to be able to see clearly for too long. His face is dripping with blood. It runs down his shirt front, tickling him in the process. But all he can do is swing there. It's moments like these that a boy really needs his mum. Unfortunately, while Toniston's life hangs in the balance, on earth his life was dishonestly being celebrated by all at Gumbaya Primary School after news of the bully's disappearance had spread like wildfire through the tiny town, then onto the music industry before eventually reaching the wider world. 
Rock music fans, specifically those of Muzzletop, had flocked to the outskirts of Melbourne, leaving wreaths, band posters, and hand-drawn tributes to honour the missing son of their favourite singer. Although none of them knew the boy, many had seen him standing on the side of the stage of the band's concerts alongside Tina. Also, at the time of his disappearance, hundreds of the world's entertainment media lined the streets outside the school and sadly, outside Tina's house. Wanting any word they could get their greasy hands on, the gossip came in thick and fast as snide, bored neighbours took it upon themselves to speculate and make up stories for their five minutes of fame. Inside the house, the phone ringing 10, 15 times a day from nosy TV stations, hounding the poor, terrified mother, there was no escape. And whilst Tina was never polite in her declination, still they persisted. Call me again and I'll punch you in the nose, she promised. The school's principal, Mr. Patterson, had himself realised how cold and nasty it would look if Toniston Turnbull's former victims didn't at least pretend to mourn his disappearance. And thus, with an added paranoia of becoming a suspect, Mr. Patterson set out to overcompensate with memorials and dedications to the boy who touched all our lives with his love of animals. Mr. Patterson felt satisfied his school's image was intact. The largest memorial from the school came in the form of a service in the gymnasium. With every student, teacher, news reporter and local police in attendance, Mr. Patterson sought to show the world just how much Toniston had meant to the school. The service would have made the bully puke. From the awful school choir butchering his least favourite songs to the obnoxious releasing of the white doves, Mr. Patterson may have been satisfied his memorial service paid tribute, but Toniston is far too cynical for that. And yet, whilst hundreds of people sat on the cold plastic seats in the Gumbaya Primary School Auditorium, not one person in attendance truly knew Toniston when he was around. But all alone, in her large house, the animals all shunned outside, Tina Turnbull sits with her umpteenth glass of wine, ignoring the umpteenth phone call from friends, fans and family, but most sad of all, wondering, for the umpteenth time, what she could have said to her only child to have brought the two of them closer together. A now broken photo of Trent Turnbull and an infant Toniston only hours after his birth sits at her feet under the table. Tina simply doesn't care about the million tiny shards of glass cutting up her feet. She just wants her son back. And as if joined at the soul while dangling from the lavender-coloured dead coral cliff face, somewhere in his head voice, Tina's cries are heard by the boy. His face scrunches up, but then it relaxes. I can do this. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! Let's move on to some of our additional questions. When developing an idea for sitcoms, is it character that takes precedence over plot? I ask because it seems many of the longer-lasting, longer-running sitcoms had very thin plots, but very lovable characters that kept us watching. Well, I mean, the plot is something that's that, in, in my in my experience, is episode-specific. I mean, what you what I think you really want to do is 
create a setting with characters that's a place where people will want to spend time mm -hmm. that uh, you know a group of people that the audience will want to invite into their house regularly or or they will go and visit with regularly on their on their television machine you know so I, I think you have to be careful with too much plot and making things too complicated I fall into that trap a lot myself because sometimes I'll want to contrive the situation to get to something super funny you know so how do I get how do I get this guy on roller skates, you know, in a windstorm holding a big piece of plywood? How can I, why, you know, because I want him to get blown around and do physical, you know. I mean, you're working backwards like uh, for, from a stunt like they used to do on shows like whatever, Laverne and Shirley or Lucy or something. Okay, you know, we want her to that conveyor belt and we want her to have to deal with the chocolates or whatever. You know, so plot will drag, push you in that direction. You know, but uh, you use Lucy as an example, but she's also this great character. She was just beautifully framed character of this woman who's married to a guy in show business and she wants to be in show business and he doesn't want her to be in show business and so anytime she encounters something or someone attached to show business she's she, her eyes light up and she goes a little crazy you know so she's going to sneak in you know sneak in in costume to get in on the stage of the of the copa show that her husband uh, ricky ricardo is, is performing in. she meets uh, john wayne and and then she wants to whatever sidle up to him and flirt with him or something i mean the specific character gets you there so yeah it's mostly about character but the question that's always asked in these situations is well that guy's not likable your main character isn't likable that whatever he how are we going to redeem this guy you know so the concern is always about likability in the characters and i think a lot of time that is a mistake because to make characters likable so that people will see them as the centerpiece of a tv show the tendency is to make them bland because when we think of likable people we think of our friend who is easygoing and you want to you, you want to go get breakfast in a sure let's go get breakfast that's not the guy who you want to star in a tv show you want the, your friend to be george costanza who's like never mind about breakfast i just left a message on this girl's <laughs> answering machine and, and and i broke up with her and i realized now i don't want to break up with her so we got to break into her apartment and get that tape out of her answering machine you know that's the guy that drives the sitcom you know jerry seinfeld kind of stands there with a look on his face like okay whatever let's go you know and he goes with him and they have an adventure but you need that Jason Alexander guy who's not likable, you know, who's a jerk to, to drive your sitcom. So when you talk about character, that's what I like is I, I like writing characters who are going to really want things and and they're going to want them a lot. And if you get in their way, they're going to go around you or through you because they, you know, they're they're into it. That's the kind of character I like. And a lot of the time, the pushback will be like, oh, that guy's obnoxious. I don't ew, I don't want to see him. So you have to find the right balance because I'm sure there are people out there that always hated the Jason Alexander character and didn't watch Seinfeld for that reason. So it's a balancing act between likability and characters who've got an engine in them, you know, a little bit of, of something in their belly to, make, to move things forward. Yeah. So, it, I mean, to me, I guess I'm saying it's character. But I also think there's something about a setting. And when I turn on the TV and I don't know a show, if the setting is someplace that's pleasant and interesting, you know, I'll sometimes stick around just for the art direction, at least for like half an episode. You know, if it's like, oh, this is set in a bar in Boston, you know, and these people are seem to be having a good time hanging out together, you know, or Friends, which is, you know, a, a fantasy land New York apartment with a bunch of, uh, you know, friends who seem to say very well scripted nonsense to each other. So I think it's important to craft a setting that's pleasing. A lot of the time I'll see a show and it looks bleak and it's supposed to be comedic and I'm like, it, it's really hard for me to get over the hump of it. I don't want to hang out here. Sometimes the aesthetics become a, a problem.
you know, if there's some whatever show set in Victorian England, uh, you know, I'm even if it's kind of shitty, I'll give it a little more. I'll give it a little more latitude than I normally would because I like seeing guys in the hats and and the, and the women and the, and the way they talked and all that kind of you know Dickensian Sherlock Holmesian kind of stuff that tickles me. So, but and and I'm sure there are things, there are aesthetic choices that that other people are drawn to that that cause them to give shows more latitude than maybe they should. What you were saying about character work, especially with Jason Alexander, because he's making his Broadway debut as a director this season, um, it directing a, a comedy with five very distinct like sitcom tropey characters. And him as someone who played that character for so long, I'm really excited to see what he can do as a director in terms of these very distinct characters. I think that'll be really great. I, you know, I worked with Jason. I know him a little bit. I know he's doing this play this fall, but yeah. supposedly next spring he's doing a show in Chicago that a friend of mine wrote. He's going to act in. Uh, there's a there's a theater company called the Chicago Theater or something that, that yeah. I guess is a, a fairly decent one. And my friend Rob uh, Ulan wrote a play, uh, I think currently called Judgment Day, about a um, you know a Weasley little uh, lawyer who gets uh, confronted by an angel and about you know, has a heart attack and has a near death experience and and and, and, a, and a, an angel confronts him about uh, repairing his ways in order to avoid going to hell. And Yulin is, is a buddy of mine, a, a sitcom writer, and he wrote this play and it's getting a production. And Jason is, is is at this point slated to star in it, I think like next April. So if you're in Chicago uh, at that time, you might, Spencer, you might check it out. Yeah. But yeah, Jason's very skilled. Again, Seinfeld would not have been Seinfeld without Jason Alexander. You cast some other, and you know, and that's and that's always the danger with network television. You go in with your pilot and say, I want to use Jason Alexander. You know, this guy, this guy, and they're like, he's short and he's bald and he's fat you know fuck that guy you know you got to use whatever john stamos you know to play jerry seinfeld's buddy you know he's a good looking guy and and he's got a high tvq and everybody loves stamos and again i know stamos he's a nice guy and he's talented but i'm just saying would that show have worked if they cast john stamos as george costanza you know the having the having the funny little fat balding guy uh there as his as dry as the engine on the on the shows made all the difference in the world and, uh whatever you know whatever money jason got for that he earned because he was he was carrying a lot of that show on his back yeah he and and, and julie uh julie louis dreyfus well i think that maybe a slice of saturday night needs jason alexander he can come in and play the club go go owner and apparently i mean I, i've heard from aaron that the the script is actually very funny um between the songs as well so yeah so that's interesting what you say about that that likability because i i find jason to be likable <laughs> very likable and i think that's possibly my neuroses you know like like i loved new york because i loved sort of the energy of it and uh you know matt with my catholic guilt it just it just all sort of <laughs> plays into the likability of those characters that are so driven in in um in your show um in um the kids are all right as well the mother like she's so like my mom she's like she's so driven she just has to get through that day every day and so sometimes the, what she comes out with that actress is great if you guys have, yeah mary mccormick she's amazing there's lots of irish catholics in australia as well <laughs> i'm married to one so <laughs> uh, yeah i would think so so I'd be yeah, I'd be curious if the show's playing there because obviously and there's money for me. That's a great example because the character of the mom on that show, and again, people haven't seen it. I mean, it, it did it did fine, but I'm saying it's not 
you know, it's not a cultural touchstone. But, you know, I had a lot of fights with the folks at ABC about the mom because I went extreme with her. I wanted her to be a, a difficult character. And they were like, well, she's a mom. She's got to love her children. You know, and the fact that she says all these mean things about her children and she smacks them in the head with a, you know, in the back of the head with a wooden spoon while she's cooking, you know, and then takes the spoon that's, you know, and then puts it right back in the food. Um, you know, there were there were lots of fights about that that I had. And, you know, it's part of the reason that the show isn't still on is that I basically told the bosses to take a flying leap uh, with their notes because I, uh, I you know, I, I really wanted the show to be what it was. And, and part of that was a deeply flawed main character of this mother uh, who was, you know, in some ways like my mother, but very exaggerated version of it. And I really wanted to put that on TV and I didn't want her to be the perfect mom. I, I didn't want her to be, you know, I wanted her to be a, a great and interesting mom and a funny mom who would drive stories and make things, kind of make things happen. So um, Mary McCormick, is, is great and if uh, and if anyone listening to this podcast you should check it out uh the kids are all right on whatever version of the disney plus thing uh, you guys get over there and then it's really quite good i've worked on a lot of shows and this one was very very special and it's also you know based on very autobiographical i have i have seven brothers i grew up in a big irish catholic family in glendale california in the 19 you know in the 1970s and we did a, a really good job of um of uh, recreating a lot of that and uh you know and i spent disney's money very well <laughs> to do it very familiar to me i'm polish catholic i'm not as many siblings but you know one of four and my husband's um of irish catholic of five and so we all sort of know what that was and there's that one there was one line i was watching this morning it was about um just the parents saying well you don't even know like we 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 lived through the depression and this this sort of stuff. And my my mother's part of the family, uh, the Polish Catholic side of the family. Like it was like, you don't know suffering. <laughs> and oh, yeah. I think that's funny. I think that's really funny. I'm like, yeah, because we didn't, because we were just these innocent kids growing up in the 70s who just everything sort of happened. And we did have dinner on the table every night, even though sometimes the dinner was liver with you know onions uh, which we didn't really want but that's what was affordable at that time yeah i mean i love that sort of nostalgia yes i have you know very plain meat and potatoes taste because of the the family i grew up in my wife suffers for it she's a foodie and she likes lots of interesting food and my mother wasn't a great cook but she had to feed a, a troop of people and so a lot of fish sticks and campbell soup and, and hot dogs and you know and that's that's still what i enjoy it's it's uh, maybe maybe because it feels like love to me yeah lovely nice well thank but thank anyway thanks for bringing up the kids are all right i'm i'm excited for any opportunity to plug that show uh it was a great experience and i think if uh, people watch it they will they will enjoy themselves you know looking at shows that um you know that could be written sort of by this chat gbt and, and ai it's something that's being talked about a lot you know and people are saying oh well our performers and our writers going to get replaced by this and i just think that like i love to write like just just i've been writing for myself um as, as someone who's been an actor for all his life and i used to write a lot at, at nyu and uh you know i got very good grades for it and then i've started writing for myself and i'm like oh it's even writing the director's notes for the show i just directed which was called song contest the almost eurovision experience which again was a, a pastiche show and it was so pretty similar to a slice of Saturday night, I suppose. Um, because it was the jokes were in the songs, but then there was the all the comedy in between. Do you reckon that there is any validity in this fear about AI or chat GPT taking over comedy writing or writing in general? 
Well, I, I certainly think that's that's something that they would like to happen. I mean, any version of, you know, of of simplifying the the process for the bosses, for the people who run the studios and the networks and the uh, streaming services, you know, any version of them being able to push a button and getting a script without having to deal with the unpleasant arguing uh, with me, you know, uh, they, they would love that. And it would obviously be faster and it's cheaper. But we're not there yet. The, the technology isn't there yet. From what I've seen so far, I think that the computers can, could write a credible procedural drama. If you fed every episode of CSI something or other, you know, uh, or some Dick Wolf fireman show or cop show or something, if you fed them in there, they could probably generate something fairly credible that you could then clean up. But I haven't seen one tell a joke yet that would make me laugh. You know, there's all sorts of things on the internet of like, oh, this is a Seinfeld episode written by, you know, by CG. And it's like, no, no, no. You know, that show was idiosyncratic and and had, a, you know, had a wonderful level of odd. So, you know, it can only imitate it. It can't be fresh and original because the whole point is it's a machine imitating something else. I think the greater danger is actors. I think actors are, are going to be the first ones to get replaced because, you know, actors, I mean, and production, I mean, the whole mechanics of production, that's the expensive and, and, and cumbersome part of making a show or a movie. The idea now, I mean, when you watch a Spider-Man movie or an episode of The Mandalorian, how much of what you're seeing is actually a guy in a suit doing a thing? You know, how much of that is something? I mean, when, you know, obviously when Spider-Man is swinging through the streets and jumping through the air and stuff, that's CG, you know, that's fake uh, stuff. And then he lands on the ground and the guy's there. But, but you know, in The Mandalorian, he always has that helmet on, you know, because, you know, because it's a little harder to get facial expressions. But I mean, I think they're going to replace actors like, and they're already doing it. You know, I think they're, they've got, recorded voices, voiceover voices that, that can do narration, that can do voiceovers. You know, I mean, Tom Hanks was talking about this the other day, that basically it, it's going to get to the point where he walks in and they scan him up and down all over and they twist a few dials and they and they can decide what age he's going to be. And, and, you know, and he's going to sell his likeness and somebody's going to create a movie or a TV show starring Tom Hanks while he's sitting at home. Mm. You know, I mean, I think that is like imminent. I think that's that's something that's going to happen right away, which is, for my money, why the actors really should go out on strike and demand some protection from it. I don't think uh, AI is is on the verge of replacing what I do, uh, but I may be naive. I, I do think, again, I, I'm going to have to look into it, but I do think it might be a helpful tool for somebody like me to, you know, kick up some ideas for a story or something to, to hear what the cliches are and, and maybe try to figure out a way to subvert them, you know, not to not do the thing that the computer tells me, because if the computer tells me this is where the story should go, then that probably tells me that that's the audience. Uh, that's what the audience is expecting as well. But, you know, that might be useful. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I'm not particularly frightened. It's not one of my big issues. Um, I think I think the bigger, the more important issues are, you know, a, a paying job that for as many writers as, as possible and getting and as a showrunner, getting as much help as you can to, to run the show. I mean, just just staffing that last show that I ran, you know, was a big fight. I mean, uh, they had the writers they wanted me to hire and I had writers I wanted to hire and I'd never felt so much interference from the bosses before. I could not hire the people I wanted to hire. I mean, I ended up with good people, but it was it was a wrestling match. Um, and and they were limiting, you know, how much they would pay them, and, and uh, you know, they 
they were they came to people with insultingly low uh, bids for their services yeah. and um, and all that. So that's that's the those are I mean from my point of view that's those are the fights worth fight is yeah. is, is is getting good people to help you make your TV show. Um, I mean that being said, if we're only doing eight episodes, maybe I don't need uh, you know ten people to help me, but I could sure use sick because it's you know when you're doing twenty four episodes, then you know you need a lot of people of horses to pull the wagon, and especially on a you know you're going to do twenty four episodes in a ten month schedule, you know, and and that means you got to generate the scripts fast. You got to fix them. You got to get them on the stage. You got to shoot them. You got to edit them. You've got this big job you have to do as a showrunner and you're working an 18 hour day easily. And so to have a lot of really talented people around you helping you. So when you're dead on your feet and half asleep, you have people there, you know, that can do up. And if somebody's got a problem with their kid, you have enough backup that, you know, that, that your writing staff is intact to limit a showrunner you know, but the work isn't proportionally reduced when you're only doing eight episodes. It's not a third as easy as doing 24 episodes. You still have this whole world you have to create. You have to break these stories and somebody has to supervise them and stuff. So to say, well, you know, we you have 10 people to write, you know, to write uh, 24 episodes. So to write to write uh, eight episodes, we'll give you four people, you know, or something, you know. That that is kind of bullshit. That's the kind of math that only a Silicon Silicon Valley nerd would come up with. You know, it's it's an art, and you need and you need people to help you. And I, my what I'm hearing in some of these shows that are doing you know where they have no, almost no staff is that the showrunners, the show creators, are killing themselves, just just killing themselves with the amount of work that they have to do all by themselves or with very little help. And of course, everyone's eager to be a showrunner, especially young people just starting out. Are like, I get to be a showrunner. I get to have my dreams up on the screen. So they're willing to basically get the shit beat out of them um but it shouldn't be that way mm. you know mm. and and especially when they're basically just exploiting them so that the executive and the stockholders can can enjoy greater economic reward for the creative effort of these creative people so that's uh, that's my take on the ai of it all i think that that's i don't know that's not that's not foremost in my mind i i, I think it's taken over the discourse to some extent but it's not it's not a thing that, that i'm sweating about i'll almost be disappointed if we spend a lot of our capital in negotiations on that point but right. um you know but you know but i'm i'm not the only person who has to be serviced here in, in terms of this labor action yeah yeah fair enough fair enough that's interesting that you say about um the writers and the actors because they're we were just talking about rules of three a lot with this show that i just did and it, in some of it is it's it's uh kurt Kohler, who's a sitcom teacher in la talks about um apple apple tampon where you expect someone to say apple 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 and then they say Sure. something completely unrelated and that's that rule of three and it has to do with rhythm and it has to do with going up going up and then going down and so there is in when you talk about ai being able to uh reproduce that for actors i'm like oh yeah actually there are some formulas in place there that um with good writing that you can just you could probably use um a different voice but i see i love i love uh audience expectation i mean look sitcoms get a bad rap you know, oh, they're dumb sitcoms. They're, you know, with canned laughter and blah, 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 and all this stuff. You know, I've done, look, I've done single camera shows that don't have laughs. And I've done live audience shows that do have laughs. I've done both, a lot of both. And I always think that, you know, that the, that the uh, multi-camera live audience shows get a bad rap, that they're much more like theater. They're much more like Robert, what Robert Horn is doing now. And, and it teaches somebody how to find that laugh, how to find that joke. You know, do they play a little broader than, you know, than a than a, a low key um, single camera comedy? Sure, they they play, they often play a little broader, but the skills involved are massive. I mean, to, you know, don't 
don't pretend that it's not a remarkable skill to write a good joke. Some of the people I've worked with over the years are geniuses. They're just amazingly talented people and they've labored in the sitcom fields for, for a long time. And it's always so insulting to me when, well, it's just set up punchline, you know, it's just jokes. You know, it's like these people take it very seriously. I mean, look, there are hacks. There are people who are terrible, but I know, but the people I know and appreciate and, and hang with are very, very talented and, and they'll, you know, and if you, and if you pitch a hacky joke, they'll shoot you down. They'll tell you, you know, you're, they'll tell you it's terrible. No, the, the value of, of cliches and the kinds of very familiar things that the chat G GPA blah, blah, blah thing is, it would do is it'll shows you where the cliches are. And, and, and your job then as a writer is to be creative and to, and to uh, subvert the expectation, you know, mm -hmm. that, that you don't necessarily hit the tampon thing. You do it a different way, you know, yeah. because if that's, if that's what is spit out by a computer, then the audience also knows that stuff. And you have a job to surprise the audience. Not yes. to just not to just give them something familiar, which so often is what I feel like entertainment is now is like. And again, a lot of time with these super, these superhero shows and stuff, it's just fan servicing. It's like, oh look, the Darth Vader showed up, you know, uh, you know. I mean, oh this thing I know. Oh look, this movie's got three Spider Men in it. Oh now there's four. Oh and there's an old. And now they brought in an old Batman and they they you know. I mean, it's just it's giving people. It's giving people comfort food. And, and look, there's a place for comfort food. I mean, as I say, I eat a lot of junk, but <laughs> I, I do feel like I feel scrupulous in my work about trying to startle and surprise and engage the audience, maybe to a fault. Maybe I'm working too hard, but you know, I, it's one of the things that I find annoying about a lot of the comedies now is that they don't seem to be working hard enough to, at least in the spirit of trying to make me laugh. And so before we finish up, Matt, do you have any questions for Tim? Oh, I think I think I've covered most of them. I think I've covered most of them. Um, yeah, no, I'm pretty happy with. <laughs> I think I've covered everything that I wanted to ask. Thanks. This, I think, this was very successful. You guys, you know, I mean, again, you guys are, are great, uh, and uh, I enjoyed talking about this stuff. Obviously, I have strong feelings about a lot of the topics, so you know, I'm more than happy to go on and on. You had mentioned you saw a couple shows last season. We know you're big fan of musical theater what is what is a show that you walked in not expecting to enjoy and that just you know swept you off your feet um well yeah you're talking about expectations i think i have to go back a couple i have to go back a few years but i remember going in to see the uh the production of of how to succeed with uh what's his name with harry potter in it um, yeah. thinking okay i've seen how to succeed a half dozen times i saw the you know various versions of it and not expecting much and, you know, and he was great. <laughs> and it was a just, it was a sprightly fun, you know, thing. So that's one that really knocked my socks off just because I kind of went reluctantly and thought I knew what the show was and um, didn't have big expectations for it. Um, I'm trying to think of the current crop of things that I've seen recently. Um, I mean, you know, obviously Hamilton, the first time I saw it was great. You know, I knew it was going to be great, though. So I didn't go in with lowered expectations. Musical theater. Well, uh, can you, uh, Spencer, can you think of one that 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 really um, just knocked your socks off? Uh, shocked. I I walked in being like, I have no idea what this is going to be. It's it's a musical about corn. How good could it possibly be? And I walked out <laughs> being in the top five shows I've ever seen. Well, good. Well, I'm glad you liked it. I'll have to, again, I'll have to check it out.
Okay, so we have one more question. Have you ever okay. given a standing ovation that you didn't mean or that made you feel dirty? <laughs> um, I'm not a big uh, standing ovation guy. I'm usually that guy who's sitting there kind of going, hmm. I mean, a lot of it is because I'm six foot five. So if I stand up, that means everybody has to stand up behind me. And I feel <laughs> and I feel bad about that. So I I usually am one of the last people to stand. Uh, and my wife will, or, or my daughter will look at me like I'm being ingracious, but I'm like, I, I just out of consideration for the other people. I don't want to stand up and block somebody's view all the way back. Um, but you're saying so a, a show that like other people loved and I didn't love quite as much. Yeah. Right. I walked out. I didn't love Kinky Boots. I, I, I mean, I'm trying to remember what I didn't love about it. I don't, I don't have a, a ready critique of Kinky Boots. But I remember everybody being very uh, jazzed about it and kind of going, ah, it's fine, you know, and and, uh, and 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 yes, and only basically standing up because I had to because the people in the row were already fighting their way to get past me to the aisle, you know, so I had to stand up just to make room for their their legs. But um, that would probably be example. Oh, one of the shows I really loved this season was um, uh, Leopoldstadt. Uh, I, I liked that yes. a lot. It's a straight play; it's not a musical, but. Um, I just, you know, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, enjoy is hard work for a show about the yeah. Holocaust, but but I liked yeah. it. I thought it was very well done. Tom Stoppard and the cast and just, you know, just a lot of good words, a lot of really, you know, interesting, vivid characters talking about important, smart things. It was a, it was a pleasure. My, but my wife didn't like it as much, but I liked it a lot. Well, and connect, connecting that show back to you, Josh Molina is in that show right now who worked on yep. Sports Night. And he, but he, and he replaced David Crummels, who, uh, yes. who, who uh, was in the show when I saw it. And uh, David and, and I go back to a show called The Trouble with Normal uh, that we did uh, at Paramount years and years ago. And I know David a little bit. So I talked to him afterwards. He was very nice. And, and we talked after that. But I know, obviously, I know Josh too. Um, yeah. Both, both really talented guys. So, yes. Yeah, so before we go, uh, where can we find you online, Tim? Find me online uh, uh, on Twitter. Oh, are you like on Twitter? Oh, what is my yeah. Twitter? Oh, my my Twitter handle is at flaked and formed, which it, it it's not there's not even an interesting story behind it, but it's flaked f l a k e d and a n d formed f o r m e d. Um, that is my Twitter handle. So you can certainly check me out there if you if you want. You can hear my weird rantings and and uh, sad attempts at uh, at collegiality and comedy. <laughs> and do you have anything that you're currently working on that you'd like to plug? Well, no, because you're on strike. Yes, I'm working on things that uh, that I hope to present in a big blob after the strike. Uh, we'll see what happens. Knock on wood. Matt, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at Matt Young Actor. Matt, my first name with two T's, Young. I'm not old and actor. That's what I do <laughs> when I'm not directing or hosting podcasts. Um, and that's across all social medias, at Matt Young Actor. And you can find me on Twitter at Spencer Share, S-H-E-R underscore. You can also listen to all episodes of And the EGOT Goes To, streaming wherever you, you listen to podcasts. We just finished discussing, breaking down, predicting this year's Tony Awards and discussing this entire Broadway season. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tim. This was really great. It was a pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Tim. It was nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. We shall see you all next time. Hi, Aaron. How did we do? I'm sure you can pare this down to a nice 20 minutes. <laughs> no, I <quick> <laughs>